In this second chapter, Paul traces the spiritual biography of a Christian. He tells us what we were apart from Christ, and he tells us what we are in Christ. The emphasis in the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 10, is on our alienation from God. The emphasis on the last half of the chapter, verses 11 to 22, is our alienation from each other. And so the first half of the chapter is primarily vertical. The last half of the chapter is primarily horizontal. In the first verse of chapter 2, we found that we were dead in our sins. That is, we were lifeless. We were separate from God. And the solution there is that God made us alive together with Christ and actually placed us in the heavenlies in Him. The problem in the second half of the chapter is is, uh, summed up in verse 12, right in the middle, where it says we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were separated from the people of God. And the solution we see coming out in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 14, where we read, "...who made both groups into one." Verse 15, "...that in himself he might make the two into one new man." Verse 16, "...and might reconcile them both in one body to God." Verse 18, "...and through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." Verse 19, "...but you are fellow citizens with the saints." Verse 22, "...in whom you also are being built together." into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so in verses 11 to 22, not only are we brought to God, but we are brought to each other. And the key word in this passage is the word peace. It's used three times. In verse 14, it says, He Himself is our peace. At the end of verse 15, He establishes peace. And in verse 17, He came and He preached peace. And so Jesus is peace. He made peace and He preached peace. Now we hear a lot about peace today. Christmas season. And yet peace is something that eludes men. We talk about it. We sign treaties about it. We sing about it. But men don't have it. Men don't have peace with God. And they don't have peace with each other. In fact, in Romans 3.17, God makes this statement about mankind. He says, the way of peace they do not know. And not only does man not know the way of peace, he doesn't even know what caused the conflict. If you ask somebody who's alienated from someone else what the problem is, what is he going to say? It's him. You know what the Bible says? James chapter 4, James asked the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And then he answers it with a question. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? What's the source of external wars? It's internal wars. It is my selfish desires, which is synonymous with sin. Sin is the problem that I have. And so it's sin that causes me to be at war with God. It's sin that causes me to be at war with my fellow man. And since only God can solve the sin problem, only God can bring true peace. And Paul is going to illustrate that in our passage by showing that God has bridged the gap between, or let me say the greatest gap that ever existed between people. You say, well, what is that? Well, that is the gap between Jews 
and Gentiles. You say, you mean that's the greatest gap? That's the greatest conflict? Well, it should be obvious to us because 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, man has no, come no closer to resolving. We still don't have peace in the Middle East. In fact, recently we witnessed the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin, who was assassinated by a fellow Jew. And why was he assassinated by a fellow Jew? Because he was trying to coordinate a peace pact with the Palestinians. And they said no to peace. The best man can do with peace is a very temporary, unsatisfactory peace. And the only one who can bring permanent, lasting peace is God. And this passage tells us that that is exactly what he has done. Now, our passage divides itself nicely into three sections. We see what we were in verses 11 and 12. We see what Christ has done in verses 13 to 18. And then we see what we are in verses 19 to 22. If you want to circle some key words, circle the the phrase in verse 12 that says, you were. And then circle the words in the beginning of verse 13, but now. And then circle the words in verse 19, so then you are. You were, but now Jesus has done something, so then you are. And that's the outline for this passage. And we'll get about halfway through it today. First of all, what we were in verses 11 and 12. Notice, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, and then he adds a clause to that, but he picks it up again in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, remember. Now, Scripture tells us to forget some things, like the misdeeds others have done to us. But one thing we are never to forget is who we were apart from Christ. And Paul tells us here to do some reminiscing, to go back and to remember. Now, why does he want us to do that? Well, I think a couple reasons are obvious to me. Number one, it makes me thankful when I go back and reflect on who I was apart from Christ. When I remember who I was, then I begin to appreciate who I am in Christ. Now, I run across Christians sometimes, and they're envious of non-Christians. You ever get in that situation you need to do a little remembering about what it was like to be a non-Christian. You need to take an honest trip back to where you were apart from Christ and remember what you were without. But not only does it make me thankful, it also makes me humble. Because when I go back and remember who I was, I realize that I don't have a whole lot to be proud about. You know, one of the big dividing walls between individuals is pride. And when I remember who I was apart from Christ, and when I remember how far away I was, it's very difficult for me to be arrogant about that. And so Paul says, remember. Now be careful with this, because some of us have poor memories. And some of us have selective memories. We tend to go back to the old days, and what do we call them? The good old days. Don't look back and selectively remember what you want to remember because you may get in trouble and want to go back. But Paul tells us what our past was like and he lets us know it wasn't anything good. And he tells us that two things marked our past. Both were separation. The first was social separation in verse 11. Notice again. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh 
who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Now that's an incomplete sentence, but it delves into the first idea which is social separation. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign that marked Israel out as God's people. And God marked Israel out in a variety of ways. He gave them dietary laws, he gave them ceremonies, feasts, marriage restrictions, and all of those things were designed to make them separate from the nations both practically and morally. And God had a purpose in that because he wanted those distinctions to be a tool for reaching the nations. In fact, listen to this verse. This is Isaiah 49, 6. God says that he called Israel to be a light to the nations so that God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. He set them apart morally and distinctly so that they could then reach out with salvation to the Gentile nations. Now, there were two problems with that plan, two glitches in that plan. Number one is that Israel was not a very bright light. Because they took those distinctions and made them external, but not internal. And so when the Gentiles looked at Israel, there wasn't much to see. And that's why Moses exhorted the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, 16, to circumcise then the foreskin of your heart. You got the external sign, now you need the internal reality to that. And that's why Paul said in Romans 2, 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. And so most of the people of Israel were Jews in name only. They didn't have the spiritual reality behind that. And so they weren't much of a light to the Gentiles. But there was a second glitch in that plan, and that was that the Jews hated the Gentiles. And the last thing that they wanted to do was to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles. The classic example of that is Jonah. God told him to go to Nineveh and he headed in the opposite direction. And finally when God turned him around and got him back and he preached his message and Nineveh repented and God withheld his judgment, how did Jonah react? Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1 says, It greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. You see, he changed his actions, but he didn't change his attitude. He carried out the greatest revival in the history of man. And he was angry. Why? Because he didn't want to share his loving, gracious God with the Gentiles. He, like the other Jews, wanted to accept the blessings, but not the mission that God had given him. And when we come to our passage, we see those same two glitches in verse 11. Number one, the circumcision that the Jews had was external only. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, you are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. What's the emphasis there? So-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands. It's an external thing. They had the external sign. They didn't have the inner reality. And the second problem or glitch we see also in this passage is that they hated the Gentiles. Paul says they called us the uncircumcision. Now, if you didn't know it, that's an insult. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 26, when David first saw Goliath, you remember what he said to him or about him? He said, who is this uncircumcised 
Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. It was an insult to call somebody uncircumcised. And so Paul says they called us uncircumcised. And what he means is they mocked us. They defied us. They held us in contempt. Now, before you get too upset about that, let me remind you that you deserved it. And let me remind you that if you look at the history of the Gentiles, we hated the Jews just as much or more than they hated us. And so we were divided. And, and uh, when you analyze us, we were not only uncircumcised in the flesh, we were uncircumcised in the heart as well. Morally corrupt. Second problem, not only did we have social separation, we had spiritual separation, and that's in verse 12. And there, Paul lists five problems that we had. Now, morally, the Jews and the Gentiles were in the same boat. We were all sinners. We were all dead in sin. But... There was a difference in the way God dealt with us because Israel was in the place of privilege. And that's why when you slide over to verse 17, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. The near was Israel. The far away was the Gentiles. And in verse 12, he tells us just how far away we were. And he says five things about us. Number one, he says that we were separate from Christ. Separate from Christ. Now that expression takes on a more tragic effect when we realize that he's just explained to us in chapter 1 all the benefits that we have because we're in Christ. He says we have all spiritual blessings. We're holy and blameless before God. We're adopted as sons. We have redemption and forgiveness and inheritance. All those things that he talked about, he says there was a time when we were without Christ and when we were without all of those blessings. In fact, if you want to go back in history as the Gentiles, when we go back to the time marked by B.C., that was a time when the Gentiles neither were in Christ nor with Christ nor even expecting Christ. We didn't have any idea he was even coming. We were without him. Second thing he says is we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. God had chosen Israel and he had made them his commonwealth, his nation. He put his special blessing on them. He protected them. He loved them in a special way. He gave them his law. He gave them the priesthood and the sacrifices and the promises. He guided them. He gave that special provision to them. And we were excluded from that. When you read the Old Testament, you know where you find yourself? You are the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Canaanites. In the story where Israel came and circled the city of Jericho, where were you? You were in the city of Jericho. You were the Tobias and the sand ballots of the Old Testament, tearing down the walls that others were building. That's our heritage. That's where we came from. And Paul says we were excluded from the nation of Israel. Thirdly, he says we were strangers to the covenants of promise. God had committed himself to Israel by covenant. He had pledged himself to do certain things. And in those covenants, he promised to bless them, prosper them, multiply them, give them a land, give them a kingdom, give them a king. We were strangers to all of that. Now, if you'll remember, we were mentioned in the Abrahamic covenant because in that covenant, God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But we didn't even know that. We were strangers even to the part that applied to us. And then fourthly, he says, having no hope. That's a tragic statement. There was a time when we had no hope. 
Hope requires a promise and then a confidence that the person who made the, the promise will keep it. We had no promises, and so we had no hope. Can you imagine that? There was a time when we had no prospect for a future. We had no assurance of any life after this one. Every thought we had beyond this life was just a guess or a wish or a dream. We had no hope. And if you want to try to understand that, all you have to do is listen to the philosophers and the songwriters of our day. Arthur Kessler said, Nature has let us down. God seems to have left the receiver off the hook, and time is running out. Albert Camus, well-known philosopher, said, He who holds hope for the human condition is a fool. George Orwell, One wants to stay alive, of course, but one stays alive only by virtue of the fear of death. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? The only reason I'm living is because I'm afraid to die. And of course, the songs are the same way. A few years ago, Kansas had the song called, All We Are is Dust in the Wind. Somebody came up to me after the first service and told me that the fellow who wrote that, a fellow named John Alfonte, is now Christian. All we are is dust in the wind. That's an honest appraisal of life apart from God. No hope. One of my favorite songwriters and singers is secularly is uh, Jackson Brown because he's kind of a philosopher that puts his philosophy to music. And uh, he wrote a song called For a Dancer. And he's describing life as a dance. And he says, we, we do the steps that other people teach us to do and we go through life. And every once in a while we learn some steps of our own, but that's about the extent of it. And then he fin- finishes the song this way. He says, and somewhere between the time you arrive And the time you go may lie a reason you were alive, but you'll never know. Hopelessness. That was our condition apart from Christ. And then fifthly, he says we were without God in the world. That phrase without God is one Greek word, atheos, from which we get atheist. But he's not talking about what we believe or don't believe. He's talking about what we experienced God was in the world, but we were living without Him in the world. And though we might have been religious even, we were without God. Remember when Paul came to Athens in Acts chapter 17? And he looked around the city and he saw idols to all kinds of gods. When he got the opportunity to speak on Mars Hill, he says, I see that you're a very religious people. You have idols to all kinds of gods. In fact, he said, I found an altar to the unknown God. They were so religious that they thought, in case we miss one, we'll make an altar to the unknown God. And Paul comes and says, I want to tell you about the unknown God. I want to tell you about the God you don't know. We were without God in the world. Can you imagine what that's like? To be without God? To not be able to say with David in Psalm 27, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. To not be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a tragic thing to be without God and without all the comfort and the peace and the promises that he brings. So there's what we were. We were separated socially, enemies with the chosen people of God. We were separated spiritually. We were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, 
and godless. Which brings us to the second point. What Christ has done in verses 13 to 18. Notice verse 13. But now. That's almost as good as verse 4. Verse 1 had said, you were. Verse 4 said, but God. Now verse 12 says, you were. Verse 13 says, but now. Things have changed. How have they changed? The next phrase says, we're now in Christ. And again, that's the key phrase throughout the book of Ephesians. We are in Christ, and in Christ we have the blessings that are Christ. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. We, the Gentiles, who were so far off, have been brought near. And how near have we been brought? Well, we're in Christ. So we're as near as He is. Now let me ask you something. What did it cost to bring you near? What did it cost for you to be able to look at verses 11 and 12 and say, that's past tense for me? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 13. He brought us near by the blood of Christ. Christ's death on the cross was not an awful tragedy. It was amazing grace. It was the price that God had to pay to bring us to himself. But the emphasis that Paul has here is that not only did he bring us to himself, but he brought us to each other. And that's what we see in the verses that follow. He tells us three things about peace in verses 14 to 19. First of all, he tells us that he is our peace. Notice verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. Jesus is our peace. Now, how is Jesus our peace? Well, if you think about it, he's our peace because he makes both groups into one in him. You see, when a Jew believes on the Lord Jesus, he comes into Christ. When a Gentile believes on the Lord Jesus, he comes into Christ. And in Christ, we are then one. He is peace. That tells me a couple things about peace that are very important. Number one, you can't have peace without Jesus. Can't be done. You see, peace is a person. And a lot of times as individuals, we try to resolve relationships horizontally with ever, without ever resolving our relationship vertically. First of all, I must be in Christ. I must have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then through that peace, I can experience peace horizontally. There is no peace apart from Him because He is our peace. But the second thing I see here is that true peace is oneness. Because Paul says he is our peace because he made the two groups into one. See, anything less than that would not be peace. We usually have a watered-down definition of peace. We've got two armies at war and they lay down their weapons. We say, that's peace. That's not God's definition of peace. God's definition of peace is being one. Harmony, unity. And that's what he has taken the Jews and Gentiles and made them in himself. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, that's the second thing I want us to look at. He made peace in verses 14 to 16. And here Paul describes what Christ has done to make peace, and he does so by pointing out three things that he's done. We'll look at the first two this morning. The first is he broke down the dividing wall. Notice the end of verse 14. 
He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, in the temple of Jerusalem, there were a variety of courts. Around the temple proper or the holy of holy places, there were courts. There was the court of the priests. There was the court of Israel. There was the court of the women. And then beyond that, there was a court called the court of the Gentiles. Now, God established that court so that Gentiles could come near to God. Of course, Israel used that court for other purposes. That's the place where they had the money changers operating in Jesus' day, and he had to run them out. They filled the court of the Gentiles with something other than reaching out to the Gentiles. They used it to sell animals in. But between the court of the women and the court of Gentiles, there were about... 17 stairs, and then at the bottom of those stairs, there was a wall about three and a half feet high, separating the Gentiles from the other courts. And on that wall, around that wall, there were no trespassing signs. In fact, a couple of them have been dug up by archaeologists. One is in the museum at Istanbul. It's on a white limestone slab, and here are the words that are inscribed. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple... Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So a Gentile came into the temple and he saw a wall there with a sign that says, if you pass this spot, you will die. Pretty discouraging. Now, Paul knew something about that wall because in Acts chapter 21, in an incident that occurred about three years before he wrote this letter, he was falsely accused by an angry mob of taking Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple And if you read that account, it says they were ready to kill him because he had broken this law. And so Gentiles had a barrier. They had a dividing wall between them and the Jews. And Paul tells us here that Christ abolished it. Now, when Paul wrote this, the wall was still standing in the temple at Jerusalem. It was going to be standing until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And that wall was destroyed as well. So he's not talking about the physical wall. What's he talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 15. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The dividing wall was the law. It was the law that caused enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it was the law that Christ abolished. You say, well... What does he mean when he says that Christ abolished the law? Well, let me suggest several things. Number one, he obviously means the ceremonial law because the laws about food and washings and festivals set Israel apart. And those laws were abolished by Christ at the cross. You see, if he didn't break down that barrier, then Jews and Gentiles could never have oneness because we couldn't even eat a meal together if that wall were not broken down. You remember in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28 when Peter came to the house of Cornelius. Here's what he said. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. Peter comes in the house and says, guess what, I'm breaking the law by being here. But then he adds this comment at the end of that verse. He says, yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Peter had just discovered the truth that God had broken down the barriers, that God had broken down the dividing wall at the cross of Calvary. 
And so the ceremonial law has been abolished. You don't have to keep the feast. You don't have to... Uh, you can eat pork. You can... You can, you can th those laws don't apply to us today. That, that's been broken down. But I think there's a second way also that the law has been abolished, and that is the moral law. Because the moral law proved to be a dividing wall as well. The Jews took pride in the fact that they had it, and they took pride in the fact that they kept it, at least externally. That attitude is exemplified in the Pharisee in the temple in Luke chapter 18 when he stood to pray and bragged about his deeds that he had done of the law. Now, how did Christ abolish the moral law? Well, let me give you a verse. This is Romans 7, 1. It says, The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. If you're a Christian, the law no longer has jurisdiction over you. You know why? Because you died. You say, well, when did I die? You died in Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so the law no longer has jurisdiction over you because you are a dead man in Christ. You died in Him, you rose in Him. Romans 7, 6 says, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. I have died in Christ, and so I am free from the law. It no longer has jurisdiction over me. So we are no longer under the law either ceremonially or morally. You say, well, what keeps us in line then? Well, listen to this verse. This is Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. How does God guide us if we don't have a list of do's and don'ts? He guides us by His Spirit who produces the fruit of His moral righteousness inside of us. You say, okay, I hear what you're saying. But how do you rectify this verse with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. There it is. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. Well, guess what? Jesus did fulfill the law. He kept it perfectly. And you know what else? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that he gave us his righteousness. What does that mean? We have fulfilled the law as well. He took his righteousness and put it in my account, which means that I have already fulfilled the law. And so in relationship to the law as a Christian, we have died to its demands and we have fulfilled its demands in Christ. Tremendous truth. It has been abolished as a means of ceremonial distinction, it has been abolished as a means of moral righteousness because Christ fulfilled it and we died in Him to the demands of it. And so again, we live now by the Spirit and He produces His fruit in our lives. Second thing He says here, and we'll close with this, He says He created one new man and that's in verse 15 at the end. He says that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. That word made is the word created. It means to create out of nothing. 
He created something altogether new. He took the Jew and the Gentile and he created something altogether new, which is real exciting. He didn't take us as Gentiles and make us Jews. He didn't take the Jews and make them Gentiles. He made the Jews and the Gentiles and he made us something altogether new and here he calls it one new man. Now what's that? That's the church. That's the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ there are no distinctions. And that's why Paul said in Colossians 3.11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3.28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are now three divisions in mankind. There are the Gentiles, there are the Jews, and there are the Christians. And the Christians are a brand new man. We are the body of Christ. And we celebrate the fact that there are no distinctions in the body of Christ. And that ought to be evident in our lives because there ought to be unity between us. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different uh, preferences and, and, and all kinds of different colors and all kinds of different baggage that was in the past. We come together in Christ and He makes us one. That's a positional unity, and that ought to be a practical unity that is carried out in our lives. We're going to stop there this morning, but let me just close by asking you where you see yourself in this spiritual biography. Are you far away, or have you been brought near? Do verses 11 and 12 describe your past condition or your present condition? Can you stand up as we did earlier with the body of Christ and say with full assurance, He is our peace who has broken down every wall? If you can't, then I invite you today to come in humble, childlike faith to the foot of the cross of Christ where in His flesh and by His blood He provided the way for you to have access and salvation through Him.